The Beer EDU Podcast, episode 113, Building Confidence with Kevin Lightman. What's up, Kyle? Hey, Ben. How you doing, buddy? I am good. Hey, it is another episode of the Beer EDU Podcast. We are streaming this live right now on YouTube. This is episode 113, and I am Ben Dixon. You can find me at bdixonnv on Twitter and Instagram. And I have this blog thing, but we're not going to talk about that because um, there's nothing on it. Um, and you, my friend. Yes, I am Kyle Anderson. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Anderson EdTech. I have a blog. It's neglected a little bit, but that's at AndersonEdTech.net. You can find that. And then you can also find a book that I wrote called To the Edge, Successes and Failures Through Risk-Taking. That's on Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com and through my publisher, EduMatch Publishing. And... We haven't talked in a while, <laughs> I feel like. It's been quite a bit, but um, we got plenty of time to talk with our awesome guest we got here, so let's just cut to the chase and get into the beer. Ben, what do you got, buddy? Yes, okay, so I, you know, it was weird, because when I was doing my beers for today, I thought I, I think I've done, I haven't done this beer, but I was going to do a beer from this brewery, Bakova, it's a brewery in Virginia. I went to Virginia for a wedding with a friend of mine. It was like in this little resort town, there is nothing there but a brewery. And it was amazing. So, but I think I had done, I, I don't think I've done that beer, but then I just got back from a trip with my wife um, to Napa. And shockingly, I went to breweries instead of wine tasting. And uh, they have a stone brewery there. And they, I had their stone brewing let's be homies and it's b b e e and it's an ipa and it is a conjunction with deschutes brewing so what they did is they did half oregon honey blossoms and half california honey and so and i think and i'm not sure i'd have to go back and research which uh hops they're using but it's it's a really good ipa it was on draft the the I usually if I go to a new brewery I usually say what's good and just bring me what you got and so the guy brought me that one and it was it was solid so 7.5 percent ABV 45 IBU a nice nice little bit of honey not overpowering but um, yeah it was good and it was it was a in any time I love to shoots and I love stone so it was a perfect combination I'll say that's a two breweries right there where. You walk into a store, a gas station, whatever, and you're looking for yeah. something and you don't know what to get. You can't go wrong with getting something oh. from either one of those breweries. So no. the fact that they came together and did yes. a collaboration, that that's awesome. So and I know Stone does a lot of those like enjoy buy or enjoy yep. after kind of deals. Yes. And they shoot has a lot of like really good IPAs and a lot of really good like darker beers. So Dark. I can see something in the future, those two coming together, Voltron style. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I was. I would love to see this one. I it, I would love to see them put this out in a store. And I should have asked the guy because I, I think they just had it on tap and that was it. So it, it'd be interesting to see. But you, my friend, uh, I think you went with like the the theme of the season. I did. So since our last recording, I turned forty, which I know compared to you, Ben, that's a little bit younger. Uh, you know, we won't get into that. I'm not trying to rub salt in the wound, but. You look, great up, for, you look great for your age. There you go. So, and I've got more gray than you. So there's that too. So, That's because I shaved this thing off. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so my wife 
planned i knew about it, it wasn't a surprise party but she planned yeah. this party where i kind of gave her a list of people to invite but i had no idea what else was happening so okay well, it turns out all these people showed up at my house she catered in my favorite taco uh, shop nice. and uh they brought all the accruciamol for tacos pastor and carne asada and chicken and mm -hmm. everything and she told people that are coming no gifts but if you want to bring kyle beer try to be creative and get him something he's never had so people uh, showed up and they basically filled my beer fridge with all sorts of stuff i'd never had which was nice. pretty exciting this one is one of the beers i don't think i'd had it before maybe i have because it's it's from four peaks brewing out of tempe arizona okay uh, i've had several four peaks beers uh they're another one that when you see them in the gas station or whatever pretty pretty good chance that you're, you're mm -hmm. gonna get a pretty good beer i really like their Kilt Lifter Scotch Ale, and then they got a couple IPAs that are real good too. But this is actually, you said for the season, this is their pumpkin porter. So okay. this is my first pumpkin beer of the season. It is the first week of October. So I'm not one of those, like, I'm not sucking back pumpkin beers in early August when they start coming out, which is ridiculous. You're um, not lined up at Starbucks for your pumpkin, pumpkin spice latte. I don't do pumpkin spice lattes, <laughs> but I did have a pumpkin cold brew with, um, the, with the sweet foam or whatever a while back. That was pretty good. But no, I mean... I like I'm talking trash and coffee. I'll drink it though. So yeah. I, I don't know why I'm saying anything. I'll totally right. drink that. So, but no, this is, um, it's a 5.1%. It's nine IBU. So a nice light one, um, straight up pumpkin porter. It's a little bit sweet. Uh, it's a little bit, okay. got that spice to it a little bit, but nothing overpowering because, you know, there's, there's definitely those out there that it is a love it or hate it relationship mm -hmm. with pumpkin beers. Um, I, I tend to go more towards the love it as long as they're not overpowering because you can get some of these okay. ones where you it literally tastes like you took a spoon into a can of pumpkin pie spice and right. then like mixed it into milk like chocolate quick or something and drank it. and that's awful. Mm -hmm. But no, this one it, it's very subtle. This one's pretty good. So um, the, the the art on it is not like super insane, but it's got you know some little jack lanterns on it. Cool. You know, nice. fun. so no, Halloween is one of my favorite holidays. So definitely right. looking forward to the season. And this year things open up a little bit more. So I think my kids are really excited this year. Cool. Um, I will say um, proud dad moment. My daughter, um, I asked her what she wanted to be for Halloween. Uh, she wants to be a punk rock princess. So basically she wants to wear Vans and like, you know, a skirt with like ripped up like arm sleeves on her shirt and everything and like a little tiara. I'm like, you know, I'm doing something right as a father here. This is awesome. There you go. Dad <laughs> so, win. That's a dad win. Good job. Indeed. So we do have a guest with yes. us. And, uh, we've been trying to record this one now for about a month and we've had some various snafus along the way, but we, uh, we did celebrate when the, when the cameras flickered to life today and uh, we're finally able to get uh, Kevin Lightman here on the podcast with us. Kevin, how are we doing, dude? Hey, Kevin. I'm so good. I am so grateful that we're able to finally connect. I know we all tried so hard and we made it. So uh, yes. very excited for it. <laughs> yeah, all right. So, so Kevin, Kevin, now this is the Beer EDU podcast. So we talked about this before we hit record. You've got beer and you've got a really cool one. So tell us a little bit about right. what you got. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I recently moved to Ohio and Obviously, one of the first things we have to do when we move is, you know, check out the local breweries, check out some of the beers that are around here. And uh, we found this beer and uh, it's from Fathead's Brewery. It's called Gogglefogger, which is an awesome name. And 
we saw this. We we're just at a bar, and uh, you know, we got a flight. We got some different types of beers, and I saw a grapefruit wheat beer. And I love wheat beers, and I hate grapefruit. And I started thinking about it. I'm like, you know, uh, back when I was in my wrestling days, a long, long, long time ago, uh, grapefruit was like the weight cutting fruit. So, you know, like I have such a negative stigma attached to that fruit in particular. I'm like, oh, does this mean I'm on a diet now? But, you know, I kind of shrugged my shoulders like, hey, let's try and see what happens. My wife and I both uh, took a sip and we're like, yeah, this is the winner. Not bitter like a grapefruit taste that you would expect. Like you still kind of tell that a grapefruit is there, but it's really just a smooth wheat beer with that nice light little flavor to add to it. So, uh, you know, it ended up being a nice uh, drink. And then uh, after we bought the case of it, we saw that uh, their proceeds go to something called uh, the Pink Boot Society. I'm, I'm cheating over here. Um, it's the Pink Boot Society. And I guess uh, what it does is uh, it goes towards like scholarships and education towards women who want to go into the brewery business, whether they want to just brew a local beer, if they want to own their own brewery. Uh, and it, you know, it gives them funding for those courses, uh, internships, all sorts of cool things. So that was exciting. I'm like, Hey, good cause too. We should, you know, drink double. All right. Well, you went, you got a case. So, I mean, you're drinking. There you go. Yeah. We did good. Right. (laughs) That that's some dedication. That must be a good one because, you know, Ben and I have talked about this before where, a beer has got to be really good for us to drink two in a row because mm-hmm. we just love trying different beers. That's true. So yeah. The fact that you brought home a case really makes a statement yeah. about how good that is. So, and well, you I, know, one of the things, like, I don't know about you guys, but after work, I'll go home, I'll have one beer and I'll just, mm-hmm. I'll be satisfied, you know, beer with dinner, you know, just something like right. that. Uh, but I do that a lot. So when I find one that can be like a go-to, then I can right. mix some other stuff in at random, but you know, right. at least I got my go-to. This, yeah. this could be it. I don't know. And then, like you said, it's going to a good cause. I think anytime you can, I think anytime brewing uh, companies like do different things and we've talked about different breweries supporting different causes, I think that's super cool. And also definitely getting more women involved in, in the brewing industry. That's, that's amazing. That's super cool. Absolutely. So, well, once again, thanks for joining yes. us, finally being able to make this happen here. So now you did just mention that you, you moved to Ohio. So right. you, you moved obviously from somewhere else. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were moving from, what you do in education, kind of like your career path, all that good stuff. So give us the Kevin Lightman story. <laughs> all right. Here's the context. So uh, started off in uh, sunny South Florida. So I actually grew up in Ohio. I grew up here. I was a terrible student, barely graduated from high school, uh, went to Kent State University down the street, uh, dropped out of there quickly, and uh, ended up giving it a shot at The Ohio State University. Failed out of there. Uh, I I thought at that point I was done with education. I didn't think Mm -hmm. I was going to make it. Uh, You know, no college degree wasn't in it for me. I was just going to be a worker bee. Okay, you know, got to accept it. And... You know, I did some different things with my mindset, uh, started diving into mindset training a little bit, started really getting to the crux of why am I acting like such a bad student when I know that's not who I am or who I'm capable of. And I started really challenging myself and I begged and I pleaded, got into a tiny, tiny school out in Dayton, Ohio called Wright State University. They let me in on academic probation. They're like, hey, mm-hmm. if you get a D or lower, you're out, but you've mm-hmm. got another chance. 
And, uh, you know, I went from like a 1.7 GPA uh, transferred in to my last semester. I hit that 3.5, got on the dean's list for the first time, graduated with my degree in English. And uh, after that, my sister happened to be living in Florida and she had a roommate move out. She needed some help. She's like, you know, it'd be really convenient. I have this degree and nothing to do with it except maybe work at Walmart. So I was like, you know, I'd like to do more school. I don't know. I've never been smart before. Now people are telling me I'm smart again. And uh, what do I do with this? So I moved to Florida and I enrolled in their master's program in education. And, you know, as I'm going through that, I met my now wife, then just girl that I was bugging. Uh, She was in the PhD program and uh, I was just finishing up my master's. So, uh, you know, obviously I wanted to impress her and like try to get on her level. So I applied to the PhD program, go figure I got in. And uh, we made it through together. So uh, I did uh, my PhD while teaching every grade from six to 12. Uh, My wife was teaching at the college level pretty much throughout, uh, adjuncting in English classes, education courses. Uh, I ended up starting to adjunct at FAU as well. So we just, we kind of did this whole journey together where we became teachers together. We finished our degrees together. Uh, we started directing a, a company called Academic Mindset. We did that together, wrote our first book together uh, through that company, and then uh, we branched out and started our own company. So it's, uh, it's been a heck of a ride. Uh, we did all that in Florida. And then uh, in December or January, which was the worst timing ever, we moved to Ohio <laughs> to uh, help my family out. So uh, I've got a lot of family here and, uh, you know, they needed some help. So here we are uh, out of the education scene for the moment, but still doing a lot of work in education through mm-hmm. consulting, through curriculum, through, you know, book writing, some other things. So that's really the whole context. I mean, that's but it's been a journey. It's been a, a lot of up and downs. and uh, I've really enjoyed all of it. Now, you mentioned that, you know, high school, you weren't a very good student and you failed out of a couple different colleges. Now, during this whole part of your journey, was education kind of your career path? That Was that your idea or were you dabbling in other stuff first? Because I, I always find it fascinating when I talk to another educator that talks about what a terrible student they were or how they hated school or something like that. So I'm just kind of curious as to what your story was like in that regard. Yeah, well, uh, my mom found something from when I was in first grade. And I don't know if you guys remember doing this. You remember like the little books they'd have you write and you'd have to like bind them together with the string and it would be like a three page book. And then at the end, you'd have an about me page. And she found one of those. And the about me page was, you know, I'm, I don't know, seven years old, uh, favorite food, pizza, favorite uh, thing, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, What do I want to be when I grow up? Teacher. And I didn't realize it tracked that that far back, but I wanted to be a teacher since I was a kid and that never really changed. I think my motivation for it changed a lot, though. Like when I was a kid, I was like, my teachers are like shining angels. I want to be somebody like that. And as I got older, I'm like, oh, I hate this teacher. I want to be a teacher. So I never have to deal with someone like that again. You know, and so I kind of had both sides of it where. I had some really great teachers throughout that inspired me and motivated me. And I had some teachers that showed some really negative practices and um, 
you know, they looked at all my deficits and none of my assets. And uh, I knew that I didn't like that. I'm like, well, what are you going to do about that? Well, I could be a teacher and be one of the good guys. So I, I think I've always been on that path and I just never knew how it would come to fruition. Uh, mm -hmm. The only time I really doubted it was when I doubted that I could get through college. And then, you know, once I overcame that hurdle, I was like, all right, now I have to be all in. Well, and I, I think you bring up a good point that I, I think that that even when we have people who are, I guess, negative role models, they still can can lead you in a way like I don't want to be that person. So I'm going to do this thing to change that, which is definitely the case similar to, to my journey in education, because, yeah, I, I was going to be a teacher, but I'm like, okay. hmm. I want to do something different. So I, I think that's great. But so, so then you get to, you talked a little bit about this when you get to college and you're struggling in college, like, like, was there a moment where you're like, Oh, that's it. Or I mean, what, how did you, cause so many people at that point would just be like, all right, this isn't for me. I'm going to go frame houses or mm -hmm. do this. Like, yeah. yeah. Was there something that happened? Well, when I dropped out of Ohio state, um, at the same time, I had just gotten out of like a long-term relationship. Uh, so now I'm sitting here, I'm all alone in this apartment. Uh, didn't really have a lot of friends out that way. Uh, but I didn't want to go back home and look at my family and say, well, you know, I failed. I'm a big failure. Come like, save me. Right. So I did the only thing I could do at the time was, you know, get a minimum wage job and just work my butt off and just work all hours of the day. And I started doing that. And I'm like, okay, clearly I'm not happy. And if I'm 20 and not happy, am I going to do this until I'm 80 and not happy? And, you know, I, I had that moment where it's like, okay, I have to change something about this entire situation or I can very clearly see my path. It's right in front of me, right? Because nothing's magically going to change. I'm, I'm not going to count on like winning a lottery scratcher or something. So it's, you know, it's... Uh, I had to face that and it took me a while. Uh, I took a year in between Ohio State and Wright State. And in that year, I put a lot of challenges in my path. So I was working full time. I was working usually two jobs minimum, but I was also journaling and starting to get to the heart of why am I this way or why do I feel these things about myself? And I started really getting to the heart of I'm sitting in a class and kids are taking 10 pages of notes and I've got one page of doodles so I automatically think I'm stupid and they're smart. And, you know, once you start challenging that, like, was I actually getting anything out of that class? And I started realizing, you know, I was learning the content. And when I believed in myself, I was doing just fine. But when I didn't believe in myself, I wouldn't show up. Or I wouldn't do the assignment like, ah, oh, this essay is not good enough. And that's what a lot of people don't see. They don't see me at Ohio State going to my English class, coming home, looking at the assignment, writing it 18 different times, throwing it out every time. I'm not good enough for this. I'm not good enough for this. And then not turning in my work. So you see an F and you think, oh, you know, maybe just a lazy student didn't turn in their work. It's yes. I mean, I had those moments, but a lot of it was I really tried and I let myself judge myself so harshly that I'm like, no, this is not going to be college material. So I'm not college material, uh, material. So once I got past that, I started realizing, you know what, first try every time I'm turning everything in, 
I am going to have 100% attendance. I'm going to have 100% completion. And I will let the teacher tell me if I'm stupid. And once I started challenging myself in that way, turns out I had a lot more potential than I thought because even my worst papers were now getting really good edits and feedback. And now I was starting to figure out where I was struggling. Whereas before I would close it all in. So I, I didn't know, I didn't understand what was the problem. So uh, I think that was really the turning point when I stopped and said, okay, what's the heart of this? Why am I not turning in stuff? Why am I skipping class on the days that I know are going to be really hard? And once I got to that, I was like, all right, let's see what happens if I don't do that. Otherwise, I know the life that's in front of me and I don't like it. It's good motivation, I guess. Well, and that's such a such an observation at such a young age. I mean, to be 20 years old and say to yourself, I'm miserable now. If I do this for the next 60 years, I'm just going to be miserable for my whole life. And I think about, and maybe social media plays this up more because we're just so much more connected now. But I, I look at people I went to high school with that, and, and nothing against staying in my hometown, mm-hmm. but like people that stayed in my hometown never left. And they were miserable then in their minimum wage job. And now here we are in our 40s. And they're still complaining about there's nothing to do there. There's no good jobs. And they've worked 10 different jobs in the last 20 years. And it's one of those things where like as 40 year olds, they're not realizing that, you know, so knowing how many people that are out there that at that age or even older that didn't come to the realization that the maturity behind that thought at the age of 20 and how fast forward where you are now is just astounding to me. And it's funny, if you talked to me then, I would have said I was the most immature kid out there. And, you know, I, I think I was one of those just very high anxiety people. And I was very hard on myself. And I had a lot of things where I was expected success in certain areas of my life. And I didn't really reach it. Uh, in wrestling, I never fully committed to it because I was worried about losing. So I never got to the level I was, you know, supposed to be at. And that was like my big thing in high school, Uh, you know, in English, which was my strong suit. That's what I ended up teaching. Uh, You know, English was supposed to be my subject. So if I even got a B on it, all of a sudden, all that self-doubt would creep in and everything uh, that was motivating me would turn right into laziness. Like, I don't want to be bothered with this because I'm not as good as I thought. And I think because I got hit with that so often, Uh, at that age, I was able to really examine it. I think there's a lot of people who are able to coast. They do well enough in high school. They do well enough at their job. They have a cozy enough living situation. So it's, you know, it might not be ideal. They might hate it and they might complain about it, but they're at least comfortable enough that they're not forced to really deal with it. And for me, I was forced with, I have failed out of a university. I'm not allowed to go back on that campus. I mean, not for anything bad, just for you know, lack of grades, but now I have to face reality. I have to go back to my parents and say, I'm a college failout. Do I want that to be the end of my narrative? And that's what my family and my friends will always know about me. Or do I want that to be the beginning of a different narrative? And, you know, thankfully I, you know, I made that choice and it wasn't easy. It took a lot of readjustment uh, because, you know, habits die hard, good and bad, but uh, you know, once I got to that other side, I'm like, you know what, that actually became a really beneficial experience to me. Cause if I didn't fail out, I could have easily been the kid that got a 2.0 and 
graduated from the Ohio State University with no real skill and no real belief in myself. And what would I have brought to the workplace? And what kind of teacher would I have been? Well, and I, I, so I'm wondering, so you, you have this, this very non-traditional path through, through your, your educational career. Do you feel like as, as you move into teaching now, does that, do you feel like that gave you some deeper insight to your kids that were maybe on the margins, like where teachers, where other teachers might say they're just lazy? hundred percent. Uh, I got in so many, I don't want to call them fights, but a lot of verbal sparring contests with the teachers that I worked with at the middle and high school level. And I just had an undying belief about any student. So we would be in meetings or parent conferences. And I've even had arguments with parents who are looking at their kid with a 0.3 GPA saying, well, I know my kid's not college material. And I went, whoa, 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 wait a minute. They're not connecting with their teachers and they're not connecting with the school and they're not understanding the importance of what they're doing that does not mean that they're not college material. It means that they haven't tapped into their skill set yet and nobody's encouraging them to do that. Let's change that narrative. And then the parent and I would you know, go back and forth or the teacher uh, and I. But I've, I think because I got to that point where I really did fail, it wasn't like I was close. Like I have the letter, you're out of here. No more, no more chances, don't report back to class. We don't even want your money. Because I've been there, it's so easy for me to rally behind any student. And because of that, I go into those conversations looking for the good in them, looking for the strengths that they have, and looking to amplify what they can do well and what they enjoy. And because of that, my relationships with my students always seem to function at a much higher level. So I do end up arguing with everybody else like, no, this kid's perfect. What's wrong with you? And, you know, I kind of make people question themselves like well, what is wrong with me they're, they're failing my class how come they have an a and uh you know i could actually produce the work like look they're doing it they're capable give them a chance well and as somebody that's taught college now too i can imagine that you see those things right away in those college age students whereas other professors they probably are like oh well you know what i've got 400 other kids in this class you know, i don't have time for that but I'm sure that gives you different insight in that scenario too. Oh, I love it. And, you know, I'm working with pre-service educators. So um, I had one who was just a fantastic writer and she had no belief in herself as a writer. And, you know, she wanted to be an English teacher and she's going through the same struggles that I went through, obviously with a much different context, different backstory, but that same present moment issue of my work isn't good enough. So, I kind of scrapped her assignments for a second. I was like, look, there's a research contest at FAU. I want you to write for that. And you're going to do original research. I will give you some guidance. I'll throw some articles your way. And I will give you all the feedback you want. I don't care how many drafts you send my way. I will give you feedback. I'll stay up all night if I have to. I want to see what kind of work you can produce. Go figure she gets published. Right? And that's somebody that was struggling to turn in assignments for me because she was worried that her work wasn't good enough for what I was going to grade for. So being able to go into a college level and you see, you know, the college students who are about to become teachers are dealing with those same issues that their future students are going to deal with. And I now get this opportunity. I can model this and I can show what it looks like in a classroom setting 
And now they have seen it in action and understand that it works so that when they see students who may be underperforming by the scores or by the data, well, now they have a different view walking in instead of having to have that view changed through their path. I want them to start there. So, uh, you know, it's nice to be able to, to be in that kind of setting where I, I can set that example and people can see it. Uh, I think a lot of us, we try to just, uh, you know, throw a book at the problem or throw a PD at the problem. And you're not really changing the experience. So uh, just having that open dialogue and being able to have the freedom of a college classroom really helps. Well, so then you, you've got this, you've done both of these things. And I know we talked a little bit about like one of the things that you're, you're passionate about is like student voice. How do you, how do you feel, do you feel student voice bleeds into this too? Is it's allowing kids to, to have more say, builds that opportunity for more success? Yeah, absolutely. I think when, uh, you know, there's some practices that I implemented and some of this right away, some of this took time, but every year I would start the school year by having them write cultural profiles, talk about their upbringing, talk about their family values. Uh, even if it's not their personal values, what kind of context did you grow up in? Let me know what the context is. Tell me about your passions. What do you honestly care about outside of the school building? And I would use that with them to start building the curriculum. And once they saw that, you know, it's, it's easy for me to go in on the first day and be like, hey, you know, I'm Dr. Lightman. I really care about you. Right? Like who every teacher is going to say that. So that's not anything special. You know, the students aren't really paying attention to that. But when they see the first action, which is, I take what they've written and what they've explained to me right from the beginning, and that actually becomes the curriculum. So, you know, some of the people here, you're really into, you know, the sneakerhead culture. All right, let's get some reading articles on that. And we're going to dissect some vocabulary. We're going to do something with uh, similes and metaphors using this. And they'll say, was that your plan? And I'm like, we're building the plan. What you tell me and the feedback you give me is what builds this class and makes it something special, not what I brought in before I met you. That doesn't make anything special except make me feel good that I know English. Yay, all right. You know, so uh, I think that would be the expectation to start with. So uh, when they see it in action, they realize it's not that they didn't have a voice, right? They've had a voice all along and they're getting a place that's safe where adults and peers are respecting that voice. And I think that is, you know, like step one of empowering students. And I think it's a step that a lot of people miss. Uh, I know a lot of teachers that will be like, I want to give you voice or I want to uh, do something that I think you'll like because I think it's your voice, right? And it, it's really easy to get caught up in that trap. Like it feels good. And, you know, a couple of students will give you an attaboy and a pat on the back, like, hey, thanks for thinking of us. But when they actually play a part and they can see visibly this part has an impact, it's a game changer because now it's like, oh, I have expectations with my voice. My voice has mm -hmm. power. And now not only do I believe that I'm ready to use it, whether an adult is accepting of that or not, because I understand what I need now and I can communicate that better. And it's not to like you know, fight their other teachers or argue with them. It's more about, I can now express my needs. And if your curriculum isn't serving my needs, I have words and power and mm -hmm. language that can support 
me being able to describe that in detail. Well, and I, so what was the, so when you started doing this, what was the feedback like? And I'm just, and I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate as, sure. as, as an English major before, mm-hmm. like, I want kids to read these five books because they're the greatest books ever. And I mean, <laughs> did you get pushback from, from other, other educators when you started doing this? It's funny, you know, yes and no at the same time. So the, the context of me starting, I graduated from my student teaching halfway through the school year. So I was looking for a job in, you know, January. And obviously that means somebody had to depart. Well, I happened to take over a uh, middle school class, seventh and eighth graders, um, you know, like six different sections. And they were the bottom 25% of the school. They had one teacher leave, flicking them off, cussing them out. They had two other teachers come in and go right back out. So they had been very jaded in that year in particular by teachers who really told them they'd never amount to anything. And I mean, in much worse language than that. So when I got hired, my principal looked at me and he said, look, I need a warm body in that classroom that's going to stay there. These kids only need consistency. He's like, if you get around a curriculum, great. But I don't even care if you do. I just, I want you physically present in the room. I want you to make sure they're not breaking out into fights. I want you to make sure they're not doing drugs. You know, like anything stereotypical you can think of. He's like, yes, that's what you're looking for. Uh, They're the bottom 25%. They're not going to really do anything to our data anyways. It is what it is. And, And that was the context coming in. So in my head, I'm hearing opportunity. I'm like, wait a minute. Nobody believes in these kids. They've been written off by adults over and over again. And I've been given free reign. I can do whatever I want. I can actually do good teaching practices and nobody cares what books I show them or even uh, if I show books at all. They'd be happy if I played movies every day. So I took that opportunity and again, I just tapped into their interests. What do you like? We spent the first month on rap music. And through rap music, we were analyzing poetry. We were doing figurative language. We started talking about the deeper meaning of the songs, uh, how they arrived at those conclusions, uh, what the main ideas were. You know, we just went through everything you would go through in an English class. 88% of them showed growth on the test. Most of them passed it. So I ended up competing with the teachers who had the, you know, what they code the bubble students, you know, the two, three levels, they're like right on the edge. Uh, And I competed with all of them and I pretty much beat out all the other teachers. So after that, every year after that, I was regulated very strictly. Got to do this curriculum. You have Mm -hmm. to teach this book. But now I had data to support if I deviated. So sometimes they come in my classroom, like, I don't like that you're doing that. And I'm like, yeah, but did you like those test scores? Did you like that A grade that our school got that I really contributed to? And you didn't think I was going to contribute at all? Oh, okay. So we're good then, right? And that at least gave me some negotiating power. Right. Yes, I got overruled plenty, right? Every year after that, I taught Shakespeare, whether I wanted to or not. I actually like Shakespeare, but it, I didn't have the choice, right? Right. But right. If that's one quarter of the school year, that's three quarters mm-hmm. where I was able to throw in some other things and build up that interest and that capacity. So when we got to something like Shakespeare, right. okay, now we're prepared. Yeah, you had that buy-in before exactly. you, you got into that. Mm-hmm. I had a year um, where I worked in a behavior school and I taught PE and it was very similar where 
I was told from the start, just make sure they're not getting in fights and yeah and whatever. And um, I unfortunately I did not have as good of an experience as you did. Mm-hmm. Where for me it was more of that's basically what it was for the entire year, uh, where I wasn't able to do a lot of the stuff that I thought I was going to be able to do because there was so much pushback from students because uh, th- these were students that not only were they like in your situation, mm-hmm. the the bottom 25%, these were also students that, that were no longer in their neighborhood school because mm-hmm. they got thrown out for behavior issues, whether right. it was fighting or for bringing weapons to school or drugs or whatever it may be. So it was, uh, it, it was, it was a really tough situation. And uh, I, when people asked me about that time, it was, mm-hmm. A school that it chewed me up and spit me out. So just mm-hmm. for lack of a better way to put it. So um, I, I'm happy to hear that you had a really good experience in a similar situation, though, because, uh, you know, it really, it really takes a special person for that. And uh, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not one of the special people out there, but but uh, in that situation, I definitely was not. So I, I really commend you for that. Thank you. And I mean, I have so much empathy for teachers and students in that situation because you end up in a situation where nobody wants to be in the room and what you do with that time, every second is critical. And every word you say is critical. Uh, Probably the first two weeks of taking over that class every day, I would have at least five students come in and drop an F bomb at me. And it wasn't that they were doing it to harm me or to make me feel threatened or anything like that. It's because they wanted to test their boundaries because that's what teachers were telling them, right? And obviously that's a huge problem. And that's what the adults in their life were telling them. And that's how they were being treated. So they were just kind of like, hey, this is status quo. This is how we're going to do things. And I had to make some real decisions because I'm your one teacher. Uh, You know, I've got uh, my teacher core uh, cohort. And my mentors, and they're like, you have to be tough. Make them hate you. Make them fear you. And I'm like, you're not in this classroom. All I see is pain on their faces. And when they come at me like that, it's because they're hurting. And if all I'm going to do is add to that hurt, how is that going to make for a better school year? So I just dealt with it with patience and empathy. Uh, When they'd cuss me out, I'd be like, I'm really sorry you feel that way. And I hope you give me an opportunity to change your mind. And I'd move on with the class. And they'd be sitting there like, you're not going to suspend me? I'd be like, oh, you wanted to be suspended because your buddies are in there and you wanted to like play out. Nah, I think I want you here. Like, we're going to hang. And, you know, we'd make it fun. I'd make a joke of it. But there were so many turning points where if I would have said the wrong thing or if I would have just got aggravated one day, it's over. And I would have lost them for the rest of the year. I have no doubt in my mind. So I think... Any teacher that's in that kind of situation, you've got um, maybe students who have experienced a high level of turnover and uh, maybe they're in situations where it's a you know low socioeconomic uh, school or community. Uh, they have challenges in and outside of the classroom. Patience and empathy will get you so much further than fear and fighting because you'll never win the argument because the fact that you're having an argument is already a win for the students. They've now thrown you off. They've shown that you can be disrespected. And no matter how you react, you lose. So I, I think that's where I really lean heavily, like empathy, patience. I'm going to just lead with that. And if I don't touch the curriculum, okay, I did get a chance to build a relationship. And if they see me committing to that every day, 
and it's an all-in commitment. It's not just like, you know, teeter-totter. They will eventually give me something. And even if it's me giving 99% and they give one, I feel like that's a victory. Now, of course, that percentage shifted real fast, but I had to show it consistently. So uh, never an easy situation, but I was really grateful for that in my career start because, you know, you give a new teacher that's bright eyed and still energetic and you give them that freedom. Let's go. Well, so, so this might be a good segue. I mean, so you've done this, you're doing, you're, you're, you're kind of putting this into practice and then tell us a little bit about, I guess, your side hustle. Um, mm-hmm. as you, as you transitioned into writing a book and then you have uh, the project you're working on with your wife, tell us, how did you get to that point and, and a little bit about that? So kind of crazy story. And, um, you know, we were strapped for cash as educators. I think anybody can feel that. Uh, so I was trying to pick up little side hustles, but I didn't know what I was doing. So I would be, uh, like a test grader or I did, um, content building for some ed tech platforms that didn't make Mm -hmm. it. And they're paying me like 13 cents per paragraph or something like that. And the paragraphs require research and no. So I was making nothing, but I, I understood we needed to do something. And my wife and I were both very committed from the beginning to staying in education. I could have very easily gotten a second job as a waiter, like many of my teacher friends do and no disrespect to that, but you know, I've got, we had just had our first kid. We were still in the PhD program. We had so much on our plate. And it's like, do you want to pull away 20 more hours a week where you're not even home just to scrape by, you know, it's not even to like really advance our position just to be okay. Uh, We weren't okay with that. So that was our goal is how can we do this in the education space? At the same time, I was a wrestling coach and a club I worked with Uh, they pulled a program called Wrestling Mindset. And my student athletes got to go through it with this club and I got to go through it with them. And I'm listening to them talk about sports psychology. And they're the number one mindset training program for wrestling uh, specific. And we started learning more about their company and we're looking at it. We're like, hey, they just started a basketball mindset. They just started a soccer mindset. Meanwhile, I'm getting ready for my qualifying exams for my PhD, which is the most intimidating test I've ever taken. And the mindset principles they're teaching, I'm switching the words wrestling to learning. And I'm like kind of manipulating it to work for me. And I'm actually applying it. And I'm finding it's really working for me. Took the test, more confident than I've ever been in my life, passed it flying colors, no problems. I started using it in my class. And I started reappropriating their curriculum just a little bit, making some tweaks. And my students started really connecting with it. Like, hey, we got something here. So we emailed them and and we made our pitch. We're like, how about an academic mindset? And, you know, we went through the figures and the numbers and we had all these great ideas. They're like, yeah, we could use you. Let's do it. And they gave us basically complete control of their academic division. Uh, So my wife and I, we flew to Jersey. Uh, that's where they're located. And we developed this whole curriculum. We developed this whole program out together. And all of a sudden we're running a branch of a company and we're like, wait a minute, this is like, this isn't just side hustle ish. I mean, it is, it's, you know, it's just pulling in some side income, but we're like, we're being entrepreneurial here. Like we're actually building out this branch and making it grow. And, uh, you know, we took it from a zero figures to a five figures company. 
and it's still continuing to grow. So, uh, you know, we took that success and we're like, okay, what else can we do with this? Because now Anala has a dissertation. I have a dissertation. I, I love them, but nobody's going to read our dissertations. They're kind of long. Uh, so we're like, we have great information in there. How can we make this accessible? And how can we make this something that's impactful for education? And then, you know, something that can actually help further our own family, right? So we started to, you know, gain a little more confidence in our entrepreneurial side. And uh, that led us to launching uh, TLC Educated, stands for Team Lightning Consulting, but, you know, TLC, it's, I think it's cute. Uh, so, uh, you know, we launched Works. that uh, last November and we've just slowly started to grow it on the side. And, you know, we're treating it like a side hustle, but we're, you know, creating some opportunities. Things are opening up little by little. And uh, she's got a book contract right now with EduMatch. Uh, I have my first book out. Uh, my second book is going to be on the way as well. So we're busy bees. We're, we're staying in it and uh, finding ways. We just, we've done a lot of work here and we want to make an impact. Well, now that you let the cat out of the bag a little bit, we need to know about your first book. And then yes. if you can tell us about the second book, we'd like to hear a little bit about that too. Sure. So uh, I know uh, you guys know Sarah Thomas, founder of EduMatch. Amazing, amazing lady. And I reached out to her and I actually pitched her my second book that's coming up, which is about teacher burnout. Uh, that probably would, I want to hope for 2022, but let's say 2023 and, you know, keep me off the hook for now. Uh, but that's really based off my dissertation work. I did a lot with teacher burnout, especially new teachers in those first five years. And I want to take what I did in research and make it very accessible, easy to read, I think anything I write, especially for teachers, I want them to be easy, light reads that are also impactful because I know we're all on a schedule. So, you know, I don't believe in, let me throw all the research at you. I'll keep it in the, the you know, the uh, footnotes. So it's there, but I just, I want to be more narrative driven, uh, you know, and more fun and enjoyable to read, I think. So I pitched that to her and she's like, that's a great idea. And I mentioned to her, I've also been talking to some of my students and I think they've got a story that they want to share too. And I think I can connect that story. What do you think? And she's like, Oh my gosh, this idea is even better. You have to do this first. Please, please get on this project now. I'm like, okay, okay. okay. So I uh, had this opportunity. The book is called the perfect 10. And I, you know, my first few years of teaching were great. I taught in middle school. And then I moved up to the high school that the feeder that my middle school fed into. So some students I got to teach four or five years. And because I taught every grade and my principal knew that I had such a great rapport with students who were otherwise struggling, they tried to keep me with those students as much as possible. So I ended up getting very close relationships with not just these students, but with their entire families. And I stayed in touch and they stayed in touch with me after they graduated. So now I'm starting to see the long tail of this. I'm seeing students who were almost failing out, who were on the at risk their entire middle and high school careers. And now they're graduating and they're doing things in the real world that are very impressive, whether it be going to college. Uh, I had one who opened up her own business, who's probably running much more successfully than ours. Like she's just blowing up. Uh, and I, I've seen these students now 
apply what they learned in school, not necessarily in the curriculum, to their real life. And all those skills that teachers would shut them out for, like you talk too much, became you're a great networker. Or you're really distracted and you're doodling became you're actually an artist and you're getting paid for your artwork, right? So I'm seeing the long tail of this and I'm like, wait a minute, I had this thesis that these students were perfect. And every other teacher in the building wanted to argue with me about that. They didn't believe me when I'd say that the student was loaded with potential. They thought bad because of XYZ, because of test score, because of lack of focus or concentration, whatever the case might be. So I had the opportunity now to collaborate with them on this book and say, let's get your story out there because parents and teachers need to see this perspective. They need to see that what you're viewing in school is not the complete picture of who you are. And when we standardize it and when we put it in this mold, you not fitting the mold does not mean you are not good. And they really use their voice in this book to push back against those ideologies. So I play with it a lot in the book. I talk a lot about the bad student versus the perfect student. And all it really is, is the perception that we have and the perception that our teachers gave us or our parents gave us is keep getting you know pushed down the line. Students have to be quiet. They have to raise their hand. Well, I have students who didn't do either of those things ever who are fantastic human beings and they are amazing students and they did all my work just wonderfully. So I, I wanted to be able to use not just my own experience as a teacher, but also their voice and their authentic experience to show that and demonstrate that. So, uh, you know, 10 chapters of the book are their 10 stories, 10 different students. They talk about the mindset that they had going into school, what they used to get through and to further their success in life and how they shut out the noise of anybody who said otherwise. So you end up getting just a ton of different stories and they're all just so powerful. That, that, that is a brilliant idea. Cause I, I'm, I, I'm shocked that no one's done that before. Cause I do think about those kids that, and I mean, you know, you both were, are in high school, whereas I, I have, I was an elementary school teacher and I do, I do have contact with some of my kids who are now adults. Um, but it is, it would be, it is so fascinating to hear like, like kids that, weren't going to graduate weren't model students are 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 successful you know yeah. that's that's awesome and it was it came together so smoothly because you know i started just kind of mentioning it in conversation like wouldn't it be cool if we had a book where blah 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 would you be interested in something like that and the first 10 students i asked were 100 on board on day one wow. what do you need lightman interviews you got it you need me to write something you got it uh anything and cool. I started asking them, you know, because we did a few interviews for each student and I started kind of prying and digging. I'm like, why were you so into this idea? I thought I was going to have to like drag people into this and hope and pray and just find a way to get students involved. You guys jumped in and down the line, all of them said, nobody gave us a chance to say this before. Hmm. Go wow. figure. Students want to have their voice heard. Like, you know, it, it seems so common sense and yet it doesn't play out. And I think part of it too is my positioning was just so unique because I did get to right. follow these students so long and our relationships did get so close because now not only am I their teacher, for a lot of them, I was their coach or uh, for some of them, I, I ran a fitness club. So some of them were fitness club members. 
And they'd see me in school. They'd see me out of school. One of them even babysat my kids. So we had these relationships that then stretched beyond high school when they graduated. And they felt incredibly comfortable that I wasn't going to just use their stories and mock it up and do whatever I wanted with it. Uh, and even every chapter I submitted, they had the final edit, not me. And when book profits came out, they get their half too. So they are invested in this project completely. And they're seeing like, hey, your voice is actually valued. People care about this. And teachers, not only do they want to hear this, they need to hear it because they don't have a lot of that student perspective. And when you're a busy classroom teacher, man, it's hard to get that. A lot of these stories I didn't even get for those first two, three years. It was on year four that they finally got to open up and I finally had enough time where I'm, okay, forget the curriculum for a second. Let's, let's dive into this. So, you know, it's just the opportunity just happened to come together and it just, it all worked out so well. Yeah, if it looked like I wasn't paying attention, I was because I was um, opening another tab and adding it to my Amazon cart. So <laughs> thank I you. Order it, so. I know I saw it. I, yes. I already, yes, I added Cheers. it to mine. Yeah. So no, and we definitely <laughs> we'll have just to do a that Yeah. Well, we definitely just linked that in the show notes too. So uh, for listeners out there, you can go in there and get the direct link right to Amazon, so you can pick it up. So. Uh, but if you don't want to do Amazon, though, again, the perfect 10, 10 students, 10 mindsets, one new definition of perfection by Dr. Kevin Lightman. Go, go check that out because I certainly am going to. So now, Dr. Kevin, um, as we're kind of winding things down here a little bit, um, how can people connect with you on the socials so they can pick your brain a little bit more about some things? So uh, at Kevin Lightman, my last name is such a beast to spell. Uh, it's it's spelled exactly not how it sounds. Uh, so. Uh, I'm sure that'll be in the show notes too. If you can see me live, uh, it's up there. But at Kevin Lightman can find me pretty much anywhere. Uh, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I try to stay pretty active on Twitter. I, I don't know if you guys have found this, but my first like five years as a teacher, I only had inside my school for support, collaboration, anything like that. And we never had time. So I felt like I didn't really have a lot of mentorship. I didn't really have a network. And then once I really started going all in on Twitter, like there are people here who are actually really good teachers and they're extremely knowledgeable and, and they'll actually give you time and help you. And uh, since then I've been on Twitter a lot and I just, I really enjoy connecting with people there. Uh, so if you're an English teacher and you want some advice or you want some lesson plans, I'll throw you what I have. I, I'm a pretty darn good sharer, I think. And, uh, yeah, I'm always happy to collaborate. Uh, I love asking and being asked challenging questions. I think that's how we push education forward. So please, if you're out there, don't be shy. Get in touch with me. Let's uh, chop it up. Yeah, and definitely, like I know in your bio, it has a link to your website for TLC. There's a ton of stuff on there um, and stuff that you and your wife are doing. So I'm super excited to see that. And we'll have that also in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah, we try to, uh, you know, give as much content as we can. So I've got a blog going there. I've got um, a podcast as well that I'm just kind of kicking off and wow. slowly starting. So, you know, I have a lot to learn. I'm not on your guys' level by any stretch. Uh but, you know, it's, it's fun. I, I love connecting with people. I think teaching is a, it's a profession of networking, really. Mm -hmm. And the more that we do this together and the more we grow together, 
the better the whole system gets. So uh, yeah, try to make myself as accessible as possible. And I look forward to any feedback. Awesome. So listeners, keep this conversation going. Share some of your thoughts on today's topics by emailing us at info at beeredupodcast.com. You can tweet us at beeredupod. Use hashtag beeredupod. You can hit us up on Facebook at Beer EDU Podcast. That's all one word because Facebook doesn't like us to make three different words on there for some reason. Follow us on Instagram at Beer EDU Pod. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at bit.ly slash Beer EDU YouTube. And again, make sure you follow Kevin on Twitter. That is yeah. in the show notes. We're not going to have to, we're not going to be able to spell that one out. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can always send us a voice message using the Anchor app as well. And then if you'd love to leave us a review somewhere, wherever you listen to your podcast, we would love that as well. And Ben, if they want to be a guest on the show, yeah. just like Kevin, what do they got to do? Yeah, so just go to our website, beerydupodcast.com, and then you click on that contact and subscription info link. There's a short form. Fill it out. We'll get you in the queue. We would love to have you on the show to kind of talk about what you're passionate about. And then speaking of people that are passionate, we we have to thank uh, several people for featuring the Beer EDU podcast. Definitely check out School Rubric. They feature the Beer EDU podcast. The mission of School Rubric is to help schools, educators, and parents and students tell their stories to stakeholders. So those stakeholders can make the best choices about enrollment and staffing. So go to schoolrubric.com, find out more uh, great information and great content. And then also we're very lucky to be part of the Code Breaker podcast network. So if you go to their website, you can find so many great podcasts, including Staff Room Podcasts, STEM Every Day, Teachers on Fire, My Ed Tech Life. So go to codebreakeredu.com and find all kinds of, of amazing educational podcasts. And Kevin, why don't you stick around because this is the part where Kyle is going to do some Kyle's going to do some teaching, and I am <laughs> I am I am curious about this one. Because I thought I knew something about this, and then I started reading, and I clearly don't. So, <laughs> well, you probably know more than I did because I knew absolutely nothing about this. And I actually, I, I meant to get a hold of you ahead of time to ask you, hey, have you ever done this? Uh, so, but I'm going no. to guess, no, you have not, based on that <laughs> no. reaction. So, so we talked a little bit about yeast on the last couple of episodes, and how right. yeast is the engine that gives beer its alcohol. Okay, and it also can give away some flavors too. So. Your ale yeast tend to give off fruity esters. Lager yeast tend to give a more clean finish yeah. to your beers, but you can also get sour and earthy flavors from yeast. Mm -hmm. So, you know, really a beer, it's, I mean, it's about the grain that's used, it's about the hops, but I mean, a lot of times it's the yeast too that's being used. Well, so, right. I was thinking about like with a lambic, where we talked about previous episode, where we talked about that as an open fermentation where those, that yeast is wild. Right. It's kind of like what you get is what you get. So Right. And then well, and then when you get in some of those sour beers, they're also using various right. bacteria as well, which we're going to need to get into on an episode uh, where, where the bacteria is giving those flavors, right. which right away you're like, wait a minute, I've been sucking back bacteria filled beer. Well, if you eat yogurt, you're eating you're eating bacteria it's good for too. You. So it's it's good for you. Yeah. Bacteria and beer can be a good thing. So so brewers, you have to be very particular about your yeast because you especially those macro brewers, like your big name ones. If you're in New York city, you want that beer to taste the exact same in Los Angeles as well. And they have some of those big brewers. I've been to um, one of them in Colorado Springs. 
which that one, mm. that one there, they have their main one in St. Louis, but they have several others around the country. And right. as much as we sometimes will give that brewery a little bit of flack for making tasteless beer, that beer is consistently tasteless wherever you get it from. <laughs> that, <laughs> That's a skill. That so true. <laughs> so anyway, you know, all jokes aside, but um, you need that beer that used to be as pure as possible. Right. Um, and you, you just, it has to, in order for your beers to, to come out good. But the issue also is that home brewers or smaller brewers, they want to have the same thing. They want to have good, consistent beers as well. And sometimes you can't get a hold of yeast like some of your bigger brewers can. So this was something that I remember talking to a friend of mine a few years ago. It's a home brewer. And she was talking about harvesting yeast from a beer. And yeah. I don't know, like I just I remember her talking about this and it just kind of slipped my mind. But as we were doing these yeast episodes, I'm like, you know what? What was that? So that's that's when I kind of dove down this rabbit hole. So home brewing over the years has gotten to be a kind of a big thing. So mm -hmm. I know Ben, you used to do it for a short time, yep. but just don't have the time for it now. Um, it's a commitment. Yes. So, so, but with the rise of home brewing, also comes home brewing shops where you can go in there and buy pretty much any equipment you need for brewing. You can get your hops, you can get your grains, and then you can also get your yeast. But not all shops carry all the different yeasts that are available out there. And some yeast you just can't get a hold of because it might be a proprietary blended yeast that a particular brewer wants to keep secret for their beer. Like I know for a fact that Bell's Brewery in Kalamazoo, Michigan, for their Too Hard to Dale, that is a secret house blend of yeast that nobody knows huh. out. So, and there's a lot of brewers that do that. So, but a shop can get you the yeast you need, but maybe not the one particular you really want to work with. So sometimes you want to either create a beer using a similar yeast, or you want to make a clone of a beer. So my friend, that, and that's where the, my friend comes in, my friend Diana, she makes an excellent clone of, wait for it, Ben, Pliny the Elder. Whoa. Brews a Pliny the Elder clone that tastes almost exactly like it. So Really? It's been a few Ooh. years since she's made it, so I might have to get all the diamond. Hey, I think you need to make another Pliny clone. So wow. but either way, you can actually get the yeast from the beer itself. You don't have to like buy the beer. The, the, or excuse me, the okay. yeast. So now it's a bit of a process, and even after I research this, I still don't really know. <laughs> really how this is truly working i get it's it's one of those things that like certain things i'm very hands-on in the learning process this is a hands-on thing i think so now the issue becomes is that most of the time in order to get a good starter set of yeast from a right. beer it's got to be one that's bottle conditioned and we've talked about right. this before where bottle conditioning is where brewer brews a beer normal process they go to bottle it before they cap it they add a little more yeast to it so it continues right. to ferment while it's uh, until it's open essentially so good styles define bottle condition beer uh kevin your your hef your hef bison here th that's a good style they usually you can oh, harvest yeah. yeast from that mm -hmm. belgian wits really any belgian beer you can get right. yeast from sour ales are real good for that but mm -hmm. there's other styles out there that can be bottle conditioned like your ipas and brown ales mm -hmm. and whatnot Check the label, ask the brewer. Again, I know that um, with uh, Two Hearted Ale, I think they um, bottle condition that a little bit so you can get it from there. She also has made a Two Hearted clone before, which is oh, wow. Really good. So, and then 
One of my favorite beers of all time is one called Tank 7 from Boulevard Brewing out of Kansas City. That's mm. a bottled conditioned farmhouse ale that oh, you wow. get from as well. So, so basically what has to happen, you got to pour the beer out real slow, real careful, and then leave just a little bit in the bottom and see if there's basically a yeast crust yeast, at right. the bottom of the bottle, which sounds so this, yeah. Well, and, and if you're not a beer connoisseur, like I know people that have poured the beer out and they're like, there's something wrong with this beer. And I'm like, no, that's the good stuff. Yeah. That's well, the goal. And that's why they say too, like with certain beers like Hefeweizen's, you pour two thirds of it out, swirl it to get yeah. that yeast up a little bit. And then you pour the rest on top and it really brings out some really Adds cool flavors flavor. when you do that. So, I saw a waitress do that once. I was like, what on earth are you doing to my beer? Just trust me. Don't worry about it. Okay. Yeah. No, well, especially yeah, with, with Hefeweizen's, that's where that banana flavor really comes out yep. when you do that. So um, so you, what you do, so that you, you pour it out, you see that little bit of yeast stuck in the bottom. So then you know, I can use this one. So then the next step is you got to brew a small batch of beer. So just, just a tiny little bit as a starter. Mm -hmm. you, you brew it. But instead of pitching the yeast like you normally would, you go buy the yeast and, and put it in there. This is where it may take a couple bottles of beer to do this, but you get that little bit of yeast crust. You swirl it off the bottom. You're going to pour that into your starter. And then it's going to oh. like those that little tiny bit of yeast is then going to start working. It's gonna, and then okay. over the course of a few days, you'll start to see the yeast building up on the bottom of your starter. Then you can harvest that and then pitch it into an actual like full on recipe of beer. So now you might not get enough at first. You may have to um, add more to the starter right. or sugars to get it to grow a little bit more. Uh, but yeah, you can, you can pull the yeast from a beer. You gotta be real pro uh, careful in the process because if there's any sort of contamination, it's going to be off. Yeah. Right. So the website I was looking at, they recommended that after you pour most of the beer out, you spray the top of the bottle right. with like a no rinse sanitizer, or you take mm -hmm. like a, a plane and you just burn the top of the bottle for a few right. seconds, kill everything off. Then you get it. But then once you have the yeast collected, you, it needs to be used relatively quickly because it will die okay. unless you continue to build another starter and pour it in. But okay. you can use it as long as it's alive and, and continue to grow yeast. And you might be able to get a few years out of it if you really try hard enough. Well, so I'm wondering if this is similar to like when you when you do sourdough bread and you you have starter yeast. And I mean, we know people who bake bread, there's there's yeast that have been around forever. And yeah. so they, they use that same yeast and they just keep it growing. And I'm curious, I would be curious if you can somehow keep that going. I don't know. I'm sure it's very similar. Um, you mentioned that. I think it's the uh, Boudin Bakery in uh, yeah. San Francisco that their yeast that they use for their sourdough is like 125 right. or more years old or something. Something wow. crazy. So that, I'm sure it's very similar, though. Wow, this is like next level brewing. This is yeah. like. <laughs> no, this is something that, like I said, I researched this. I'm still not 100% sure what, I, what I'm reading right now, but, you know, if. If you're a home brewer and you're listening yes. to this right now, if you've ever done this, talk to us. We want to hear what your success oh, yeah. stories were. I'm super curious about this because I think that is the idea of building a clone. You're basically making a clone beer of, of, of another beer. And I, it is interesting you bring that up because having – we all know my – and both of our loves of Sierra Nevada. And when I'm on the East Coast, I remember because now they have a brewery in North Carolina. And I was always curious. I'm like, is it going to taste the same? Exactly the same. So there's got to be that that yeast they use has got to be the exact same, 
whether you're in Chico or whether you're in North Carolina. Yeah. Well, then you got to start getting into the water source too and filtering the water out. So there's right. so many with those big brewers, there's so many different things. It's, right. it's not like the beer you were making at home where you, you ran a little water from your, your kitchen faucet into it, boiled it down and threw some stuff in it and called it beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, it all, it all works. There's yeah. no bad beer. We've already discussed. No, this. we've established that. So. It's like pizza, right? <laughs> Thank you. There you go. That is exactly it. That, you, you've things. listened to our show before. You yes. know, because yes. we have mentioned that yes. before. So, mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, I think wow. that puts a cap then on 113. Awesome. Well, hey, awesome. Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show, talking about your, your incredible journey. It was, it was great to have you. Ben, thank you. Kyle, too. Cheers, yeah. guys. Really Absolutely. appreciate you having me on. I'm so grateful for you guys. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we were able to make this happen after yes. the issues we had there for a few yeah. weeks. But uh, nope, we're uh, looking forward to. Well, if you're if you're still listening, well, you already heard it. I was going to say looking forward to everyone listening to this, but you, you've already heard it now at this point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Right on. All right. Well, and listeners, we thank you as always, and until yes. next time, may the malts and the hops be with you. Right on.